0: Good morning again. I want to just say a a word of thanks to Chris and the worship team uh, for leading us in worship and for Jeff leading our time around the table this morning. And I want to just say to each of you how thankful I am uh, to you that you're here today. It's a a blessing to be a part of this church family. Um, And I love Sundays because I get to gather with you all. And this is not uh, was not originally part of my sermon, but earlier when we were singing, but it is now. Uh, originally, uh, or earlier when we were singing the song "Open the Eyes of My Heart," <clears throat> um, I hope this doesn't weird anybody out. But I I feel like that I was given just a glimpse, briefly, of which was interesting about what Jeff said around in his communion thoughts, because that song was before what he said. Um Of the pain in this room, and uh, the stress in this room, and the anxiety in this room, and the doubts in this room and the questions that are in this room, and the emotion that is in this room that you have questions about that you 're not sure about you 're not sure what to do with, and we sang this song. <coughs> That really, I think, is a prayer. I don't know that if Chris planned it, but the song started here and it got softer as we sang it, like we were all p- praying. This song, "Open the Eyes of My Heart, Lord," I want to see you. I want to see you, and that we get to bring our worst to Jesus, and that that's part of why we gather. We gather to celebrate the resurrection and all that God has done in our lives, but we also gather to be reminded that we have a God that is in the mess of life with us. And, um, and I was thinking as we were singing that song, the next place that my mind went was uh, to the story in Luke chapter 10, <clears throat> when Jesus is at the home of Mary and Martha. And, and you may remember this story that Uh, Jesus is there and they had opened up, Martha has opened up her home to him. And her sister Mary is there. And Mary is sitting at Jesus' feet listening to his teaching. But Martha, he said, was distracted by all the preparations. What I'm going to say are all the things of life that are involved in her life. Her preparations and distractions weren't your distractions or preparations are mine but but we have our own right and and Jesus's words as we were singing this song open the eyes of my heart I want to see you Jesus that's what that's what you sang that's what you prayed a few minutes ago that you wanted to see Jesus and I and I just want us to be aware this morning that we bring all of the all of life with us into this room and that we can see Jesus as we gather here. Um, And Jesus' words to Martha that day I, I think are his words to us too. He says, Martha, Martha, you are worried and upset about many things, but few things are needed or indeed only one thing is needed. And so this morning, <clears throat> that's, that's like, that was like the, the, the preview before the sermon. That wasn't even planned. That was just free. And so I, I want us to just be aware this morning uh, of that, to just tag off of what Jeff said and, and the song that we sang that Chris led us in. And I want those thoughts to, to lead us to uh, what we're going to look at in 1 Corinthians together. Uh, so before we do that, I want to ask, if you would, just to pray with me. Father, this morning we are aware (coughs) of all that we bring with us today. And we want to see you because we know that as as our eyes are fixed upon you, that you are the only thing that's actually needed in this life. And we forget that and we get distracted with all the preparations and the busyness of life. And I pray today that you'll just remind us that you are the one thing that's needed. Remind us again. This morning, God, I pray that you'll you'll hear, even if they go unspoken, the things that are on the hearts of those of us in this room today. The stress, the worry, the questions, the anxiety, the fears, the uncertainty about tomorrow that you'll, you'll be here with us and that we'll sense that and we'll know that and that we will be aware of your presence among us today. We pray, God, as we study your word uh, in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, that you'll give us uh, insight into what it is you want us to see and hear, that you'll be here and you'll speak through uh, your word today, that whatever I may say that is intended to stick will stay, and all the words that are not from you will fall away and be a forgotten thing of the past. We pray in Jesus' name. And the church said, Amen. If you want to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 4, that's where we're going to be in just a minute. This is week four of our uh, sermon series that we're calling Becoming Church, and we're thinking together about what it means to be the church that God imagines, to become the church that God imagines. And we're using 1 Corinthians and Paul's letter to the church there in Corinth to help us think about what it means to become that kind of people. And uh, the letter to the Corinthians is written to a church that Paul knows really well and that he had spent a lot of time with. And he's now writing back to them. And its uh, I've mentioned in previous weeks, it's kind of divided up into some sections. And these first four weeks, we're really covering the first section the first four chapters are kind of the first section of First Corinthians. And so I want to just quickly catch us up where we've been in the last couple of weeks. And so just I'll just mention in week one, uh, what we talked about was that <clears throat> Paul was dealing with as he ta- started his letter in the first chapter, dealing with division that exists in this church. And he said in, in that chapter that the cross, is our motivation for unity. So even though we have differences of opinion, different perspectives on life, different things that are going on in our lives, that the cross is the thing that compels us to be unified, to, to, to not just get along, to not just show up together, but to actually be the body of Christ. And that our ability to be unified, he says in chapter 1, actually is a statement about our maturity, which is kind of a hard statement maybe to, to hear, but it's the reality that how unified we are is actually a statement about our maturity. And then in chapter 2, he continued by saying <clears throat> that the cross is the power that ultimately not only unifies us, but ultimately it unleashes the Spirit of God in the world. And we talked about the, the Holy Spirit and what the Spirit is and how the Spirit is functioning, and that because of the cross and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit in us, Paul says we know the mind of Christ. And that we don't always live like we know the mind of Christ because we have the Spirit of God living in us. But this is a reality, Paul says. That who, who can know the mind of Christ, the heart of God, the mind of God? And he says, Answer, we can, because we have the mind of Christ. It's a sobering, humbling statement that he makes there in chapter 2. And then last week in chapter 3, we talked about the temple of God, the church, and, and we were reminded that our highest calling, church, is to be the body of Christ, to be God's people in the world, maybe another way to say that. And I said that sometimes you, again, you may not feel like that you are the body of Christ, the temple of God, where the Spirit of God dwells, because you have all kinds of things that you're dealing with in your own life that you feel like you can't juggle all of those things, you can't manage all of those things, and you feel overwhelmed. And Paul says, I understand that. That doesn't change the fact that you're still the temple of God, the church, and that your highest calling is to be the temple of God, and that the criteria about your, your beauty in God's eyes is not determined based on how you or I feel. Because feelings lie to us. Can I get one amen about that? Our feelings lie to us. They will tell us one thing that is not true. And so Paul Paul reminds us that you may not feel like the temple of God, but that isn't the, the criteria by which you need to determine whether or not you are the temple of God. The cross is what determines whether or not we are the temple. And Jesus has spoken with authority on that issue. And his death on the cross announced that we are his church. And so this morning, as Paul concludes the first section of this letter in chapter 4, he he honestly is going to sort of repeat himself a little bit. So if you're hearing some of the things that I'm saying that we're going to read together and you think, you know, I've already heard Doug talk about this, you probably have because, again, like I said last week, Paul, that's Paul, man. He just likes to kind of reiterate stuff and say it again. He kind of makes you maybe a little, maybe may feel a little bit insulting. Like maybe he's not thinking we're getting what he's saying, right? And and so it's good in some ways because you know, man, the church in Corinth is a lot like us. They weren't really picking up, you know, what he was writing, and so he had to repeat himself again and again and again. And so again, there's some some summary that he's going to kind of collect all these thoughts together in chapter four and say a few things that are new, and then he'll begin to move to some. Pretty heavy stuff in chapters five and beyond that we'll deal with in coming weeks. So let's read uh, beginning in verse one, 1 Corinthians chapter 4, 4, verse 1. He says, This then is how you ought to regard us as servants of Christ, as those entrusted with the mysteries of God, the mysteries God has revealed. Now it is required that those who have been given a trust must prove faithful. I care very little if I am judged by you. Or by any human court. Indeed, I do not even judge myself. My conscience is clear, but that does not make me innocent, if it is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, judge nothing before the appointed time. Wait until the Lord comes. He will bring to light what is hidden in darkness, and will expose the motives of the heart. At that time, each will receive their praise from God. Now, brothers and sisters, I have applied these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit. So that you may learn from us the meaning of the saying, "Do not go beyond what is written." Then you will not be able. Then you will not be puffed up in being a follower of one of us over against the other. For who makes you different than it from anyone else? What do you have that you did not receive? And if you did not receive it, why do you boast as though you did not? And if you did receive it, excuse me, why do you boast as though you did not? Already you have what you want. Already you have become rich. How I wish that you had really begun to reign. You've begun to reign and that without us. How I wish that you had really begun to reign so that we also might reign with you. For it seems to me that God has put us apostles on display at the end of the procession, like those condemned to die in the arena. We have been made a spectacle to the whole universe, to angels as well as to human beings. We are fools for Christ, but you are so wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. We are, you are honored, and we are dishonored. To this very hour, we go hungry and thirsty. We are in rags. We are brutally treated. We are homeless. We work hard with our own hands. When we are cursed, we bless. When we are persecuted, we endure it. When we, sl- when we are slandered, we answer kindly. We have become the scum of the earth, the garbage of the world, right up to this moment. I want to stop there for just a minute and mention again, reminding us that the problem here is that there have been divisions in this church. Paul started this church and then moved on to plant other churches, and, and as and he writes this, this letter back to this church after he's gone. And after he left, other people, naturally, because he's not there, began to teach. Guys like Apollos and Peter began to teach this church, and Paul gets word that people in the church are picking their favorite teacher. And so they're saying, I follow Paul, I follow Apollos. And so he's dealing with those things here in the first part of chapter 4 by pointing people to the kind of behavior that they should have, which I believe he thinks comes from what he understands about the cross. All of that stuff that he says there at the end about going hungry and thirsty, work hard with our own hands, we're cursed and we bless, we're persecuted, we endure it, we're slandered, we answer kindly, we become the scum of the earth, the garbage of the world, right up to this very moment. He, he's, he's communicating, he, he's trying to, to take the lowest position in the room, to be a servant. And he, he understands that that's the position that a Christian must take because of what he understands about the cross. So he's pointing people to the cross. Look at verse 1 again, this is how you ought to regard us as servants of Christ and as those entrusted with the mysteries God has revealed. This is, he says, what his ministry is about, revealing the cross, which he often refers to as a mystery to the world, revealing the cross to the world. Paul, Paul, quite honestly, is fed up with this church being divided, and he wants them to know That the church is not a popularity contest. The church, you know, every church may have a leader that you like, that you even prefer. But the only one that matters is Jesus. The whole thing is centered around Jesus. And so this church in Corinth thinks that they have arrived. You may remember me saying in one of our previous weeks in this series that the city of Corinth is a bustling city with lots of economic growth. There, there's a culture that exists in that time where knowledge is valued really highly, and, and people would often pursue knowledge. And, and then when they got certain levels of knowledge or information in their brains, then it would puff them up, which still happens today. And so what it led to in Corinth was that this church was thinking that they had, they had arrived. And so when we read it from a distance, you know, now, 2,000 years or so after its original writing, I think we miss the sarcasm, honestly. But it is thick in this chapter, and I tried to read it with some sarcasm a minute ago, but the sarcasm really begins in verse 8. Right? He, he knows that they have become puffed up, that they've gotten to the point where they kind of think, you know what, we know everything there is to know about being a Christian. We know everything there is to know about following God. We've been here, we've done this, We know, right? We got it. Go on, Paul. Plant your other churches. And he says, you already have all you want. Already you've become rich, which he doesn't really mean, right? You've begun to reign, and that is without us. How I wish that you had really begun to reign, so that we may also reign with you. And then he goes into this this exercise about how he has been treated, which we'll talk about some more in just a minute. You think that because you have some money, because you have some influence, because you have some authority, because you have some knowledge that you don't want for anything, that you're rich, he says. They thought they had attained a position that Paul had not yet arrived at. That they think that they've made it to some special spiritual place, and they have superior knowledge to everybody around them, that they've, been un- they've become unteachable, they've become arrogant that they had progressed beyond what Paul or Apollos left them. And in some ways, right, we might not even blame them because they're a growing church. In a growing city, the spiritual gifts, as we'll discover later in the letter, are on display in the lives of the people in the church. So good things are happening. God is at work, and so they are proud of themselves. Good things seem to be happening, and they begin to think. I think that what they began to think was, we did this without you, Paul, and we did this maybe even without God. We did this by our own effort. So he, this is why he says in, chapter, in verse 9, it seems that God has put us apostles on display at the end of the procession like those condemned to die in the arena. <clears throat> What's he saying? What, what happens in an arena? Right? People buy a ticket, and they go and watch people fight, sometimes to the death, for their entertainment and enjoyment. Like The whole point of that event <clears throat> is that the people in the arena are made a spectacle. They have been judged, and no one is listening to them. Their only purpose is to go out and entertain and die. And Paul says that sometimes he feels like this. He's out there risking his life and nobody is listening. The people in the crowd have no invested interest, really, right? All they did was buy a ticket to the show. But they're in the stands. They're in the cheap seats. They're not actually on the court, on the floor, in the game. They have no invested interest, really, because, quite honestly, if all you do is buy a ticket to the show... Your life is not on the line. And so what is he saying? He's saying, get out of the seats and get out here onto the the arena floor. Where where life in Christ really happens. He says, listen, pay attention. Your life is actually on the line too. You're just not living like it's on the line. And so he says, imitate me, follow me. Thinking that we are self-sufficient and in need of nothing is arrogant. And the reason that it is arrogant <clears throat> is because what happens when we get to this place is that we, we become dependent mentally on our own effort than on God. When it, when it turns out well for you in life, do you sometimes, maybe not actually, but sort of, you know, like, well, that went well. I, I, you feel a sense of pride, maybe even pat yourself on the back. Or maybe even, even you know, worse would be, we think, w- I don't really need anybody else. How many of us, let me ask it this way, <clears throat> were really aware <clears throat> that we couldn't get through the last week without God? Like If you had a hard week this last week, you were probably aware of the fact that you couldn't get through the week without God. On hard weeks, we tend to be aware of our need for God. That's sort of the way that it works with us, right? But on a good week, are we? If we're just being honest, we can be honest, right? If we're, if we're being honest, on a good week, are we aware of our need for God? On weeks where life doesn't throw us any curveballs, and there probably don't feel like too many of those for most of us? On a week where things mostly feel normal, Are we aware of our need for God on those weeks too? On the good weeks, I'm just being honest and a little bit confessional here, on the good weeks, isn't it easy to think we're doing good? Maybe even mostly on our own, right? And so this is an easy trap to fall into, and Paul knows that the church in Corinth is the same way. That what happens is we begin because we think, well, I know, how to, I, know what, I, I know about the cross. I know there's some certain things that I have to do to follow Jesus. I'm trying my best to do that. And so we just kind of slug through. And, and Paul says the point of what he's going to say next in verse 14 is that he's going to point them back to the cross and the power of the cross, the gospel of Jesus Christ, which is the only thing that makes our good or bad weeks possible. And so let's continue reading in verse 14. <clears throat> and maybe, maybe what I just said felt a little heavy, which would make sense based on what he says next, because he says, I'm not writing this to shame you, but to warn you as my dear children. Even if you had 10,000 guardians in Christ, you do not have many fathers, for in Christ Jesus I became your father through the gospel. Therefore I urge you to imitate me. For this reason I have sent you Timothy, Timothy, my son whom I love, who is faithful in the Lord. He will remind you of my way of life in Christ Jesus, which agrees with what, with what I teach everywhere in every church. Some of you have become arrogant, as if I were not coming to you, but I will come to you very soon if the Lord is willing. And then I will, go, I will find out not only how these arrogant people are talking, but what power they have. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of talk, but of power. <clears throat> what do you prefer? Shall I come to you with a rod of discipline or shall I come in love and with a gentle spirit? This is not intended, Paul says, to shame us or them, but to challenge us. This is like your parent deciding, your parent saying to you, you decide how the next conversation will go, right? That, that's what he's saying to this church that he loves. Paul, Paul is like, you guys have made it, you've made it in the world. And you're successful in so many ways in the world that the world sees you being good Corinthians. Towing the line, sticking to the script. But what we're after isn't good Corinthians. We're after great Christians. Culture's vision and God's vision, Paul says, are different. God's kingdom is not a kingdom of talk, but of power. And the difference between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of the world comes down to the kind of power that they, those two kingdoms trust in. The kingdoms of this world place their trust in the power of self and the goal of climbing to the top, to be achieving whatever it is that we set our minds to, using whatever power we might have, maybe even to exercise it over others at times. But God's kingdom, Paul says, is what some have called... Power under, the power under approach. Not power over, which is the kingdom of this world's approach, but the power under approach. This is, this is the transforming power of humble, self-sacrificial, Christ-like love. Exercising power under others is about impacting people's lives by serving them, sacrificing for them, and even maybe being sacrificed, in their case, by them, by refusing to retaliate as Jesus did. (coughs) We can think of this kind of power, power under. I want you to think about those two terms and the difference between those two terms. If I have power over someone and I wield that power, or if I have power under someone and I wield that power. We have all of those both at our disposal most of the time. And we can think of this, this kind of power Power under as, as what we see in the cross. The power of the cross is power under power. For The cross is its purest expression, and in, its, in its purest form is an expression of humble, servant-like, self-sacrificial love. And while the, the power, the cross may look weak, I talked briefly about this last week, why would someone allow themselves to die if they had the power to stop what was happening? It looks weak to someone who doesn't understand it. It is, in fact, the greatest power in the universe. The power of the cross is the only power that can overcome evil. All other forms of human power merely suppress evil for a while. Do we believe that? All other forms of power merely suppress evil for a while. The cross is the only power that can overcome evil. The cross is the only power that can transform an enemy into a friend. The cross is the only power that God promises will ultimately transform the world. The cross is the kind of power that the omnipotent God himself relied upon when he came in the person of Jesus to overcome evil and redeem all of creation from its grip. I think this part... Of what This is part of what Paul means when he says that the kingdom of God is a kingdom of power and not of talk. While some talk, the mysterious power of God is on, is, is on display at the cross. <coughs> Excuse me. And I think that the evidence that the church is functioning like she is capable of functioning is that you see God's power at work. What do I mean by that? the evidence that the church is functioning like she is capable of functioning is that you see God's power at work. Here's what I mean. You see people's lives being surrendered to the Lord. That's what the power of God at work looks like. You see people living completely sold out and abandoned to Jesus. You see people serving in the name of Jesus. You see people loving one another despite their differences. That's the power of God at work. You see people forgiving one another when they've been hurt or wronged in some way. That's the power of God at work. You see people choosing grace and mercy over judgment. That's the power of God at work. You see people sacrificing for one another, bearing with one another, agreeing with one another in the Lord. That's the power of God at work. These are the things that keep us unified and help the kingdom of God advance. This power is not only felt in the church, but it is felt always and also in us, guys. We have to remember that this is something that is alive in us, which we talked about in week two. The kingdom of God that has come has come into you. The kingdom of God, whose will is being done on earth as it is in heaven, is not a matter of talk, but of power, which means that we are living empowered lives filled with the presence of God, and therefore we are capable. We are capable because of the Spirit in us of the hard things like unity, like spiritual growth, like getting through a really hard week, like stress or anxiety or doubts or questions or fears. You're capable of getting through those and, in, and, and lead, even dwelling in them because you're filled with the Spirit of God and God is in our midst. The kingdom of God is not a matter of talk, but of power. <clears throat> this morning, I want to invite you to consider the ways that we depend upon our own power more than the power of God. I, I will confess first that I depend upon my own power too often. When things are going well, I can be tricked, lied, confused into thinking by the enemy that somehow this is about what I've done, about what we've done. And then when things go badly or are hard, maybe it's easier to depend upon God's power. But what if we could be aware of that in, in all those places in life? and aware of the fact that God is at work in us in the midst of this. Let's pray together. Father, we're thankful today that we are a part of a kingdom that you are building. It is not a matter of talk, but of power. And we're thankful, Father, to be a part of a church that I believe that you see and smile because I believe that this church family is functioning in a way that we see your power at work, and what we want this morning, God, is to see it in an increasing way. I know that our hearts desire together as a body, as your temple together this morning, we say, come Holy Spirit, and rest upon us. Open our eyes that we may see you Open our hearts so that we might receive what you have to offer us. Help us, God, to be aware of your work in us and in this church and in the world and to join you in that work. Because we know that the power that is at work in us and in the world and in this church is so much greater than the power that we often see displayed and played out around us in the world. God, we want to be a place where you are at work in increasing ways where that is visible and seen and tangible and felt and we pray that you'll make it so through the power of Jesus Christ and the work that he did on the cross and the church said amen if you would stand with me this morning we want to provide a time to respond in whatever way you may need to respond to God today Uh, if you want to Pray with someone. I would love to pray with you. I'll be down front. There'll be an elder in the back. You're always encouraged to find somebody around you. Let's respond to God as we sing this next song. Over all the earth you reign on high. Every mountain stream and every sunset sky. But my one request, Lord, my only aim is that you reign in me again. Lord, reign in me and reign in your